and we're away. So, folk, welcome. Good to see you. Thank you for coming into the workshop. Um, want to introduce you to uh, Michael Frost and Amanda um, Pilbro, who's going to be here and sharing some of their uh, mahi, some of their experiences through the uh, their combined um, blog sites, which will be fascinating. I've, I'm, I know Amanda from previous conferences. I've had the privilege of meeting Michael yesterday. Um, we may want to just sort of even try and close up a little bit. Mm. Feel free to come forward. Beers and come to the front. Um, I'm not COVID um, uh, contagious because they told me that the other day. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's good to see you. Over to you, folks. Thank you. Before we start, um, I wonder if we should just take a few moments to ground ourselves. We've had some big conversations today. Um, and I know for some people this has been some triggers and some um, there might be epiphanies, there might be challenges. Um, so I'm just wondering if you would join me for a few moments if you want to put both feet on the, on the ground so that you're relaxed. And what I'm going to do is ask you to do some breathing exercises. And how we do that is we can put our hand on our belly and one hand on our chest. <coughs> And what I'm going to lead you into doing is filling your belly first and then filling your chest, holding it for two seconds and then a big, deep, heavy breath out so that your belly is pushed right back to your spine. And we're going to do that maybe five times. Okay, so close your eyes and I'll lead <coughs> us in doing that. Breathing into your belly, into your chest. Hold. Heavy breath out. Push your belly into your spine. Do that again. In your own time. Welcome to the room. I hope you feel a little more grounded. I hope you feel safe. We want to acknowledge that this conversation that we're going to have today can also be challenging and it might be triggering. But I also hope that you see it as an invitation and an opportunity in your journey. So I am going to be looking at journeying towards affirming. Have you all heard us introduce ourselves yet? No. Okay, no. so do you want to do a quick intro? Kia ora, everyone. Uh, I am Michael. I um, yes, have a podcast called In the Ship, which some uh, folk around here seem to have listened to, which is nice. Oh. Did you uh, say in the ship or in the ship? Oh. Yeah, yeah. Look, do, you know, do you know how I came up with the name for In the Ship? Because I was Googling phrases that had the word shit in them. Because I thought that's how it feels a little bit. Uh, and then, uh, and and then I, I found in the shift as a play on that. So I guess that was a uh, the very first episode of my podcast was called "Dealing with My Christian Shift." 
So, um, <coughs> yes, a podcast. I'm also um, co-leader of a faith community in, in Auckland as well, called East Kingsland. And um, just feel deeply humbled to be in this space this weekend and um, to be a part of the beautiful, hard, important thing that is happening here. So um, thank you to all of those who have welcomed, made me feel welcome. It's, yeah, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing. Amanda? Mm. Amanda, I'm an ally. Um, I am a spiritual director and I'm also an Enneagram practitioner and I'm also the curator of alreadyenough.co.nz. Um, my background is I was a once upon a time pastor, um, burnt out, crashed, um, almost died, not quite, but have recovered and um, have a master's in applied theology with my focus on listening to LBG Christian narratives um, and what they had to say from a faith perspective. Um, so we bring this session today, this workshop today, um, because often churches are looking for a formula and we're not going to offer you one because quite honestly there isn't one. Every community will have a different way that they will need to approach as they choose to go forward and affirming. So the idea here is just to give you some ideas of things to be aware of, perhaps some danger zones that you need to be aware of, um, perhaps even we very briefly touch on what an ethic looks like for, for you as a community. Um, and you may not be here as church leaders, so please transcribe that back into what you need it to be um, for you to move forward on your affirming journey. Does that sound okay? And it, what we're going to do is... Ah, here we are, we're over here. That's done that bit. Um, what we'll touch on, so what we're going to do first of all is just ask you if you have any expectations first of this workshop. Um, and then we're going to go through statements of position, frameworks, how does your community communicate, wider context, ethics, data designs, remembering who is at the centre and getting resourced and then we'll come back to what we call the car park and the questions that we have here the beginning. So are there any questions that you have at the moment, hopes and fears of what you would hope that you address in this workshop? No expectations? <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> makes that job easier. It makes our job easier. No, that's fine. If there are things that come up, then please put your hand up and just go, I'm just wondering about and then we can put it in the power pack and if we need to come back to it, we can do that. Okay? Here's one. Um, perhaps, I don't know, some tools around how we have these discussions. So those are the, the difficult conversation ones, right? Um, I'm not sure. We'll see if we can cover some of that here. We may come back to the car park at the end if we haven't covered it, and then we can have that discussion. Is that all right? So, who's aware of the statements of position for churches? So when I talk about that, we're talking about unwelcoming, welcoming, inclusive, affirming and liberating. Oh, celebratory, it's liberating. Mm. Okay. We could use celebratory, that sounds nice too. 
So whichever one you like. So often what we find is we'll go on a church website to find out if they are welcoming for LGBT people or allies or disabilities or anything like that. And often the slogan will say, I'm welcome. Right? So let's just take a look at that. So this is the unwelcome. And some of us have perhaps come from communities that would disguise themselves as welcoming, but actually are unwelcome. So the explicit exclusion of LGBTQA plus people, that they would believe that is an act of sin, rebellion, and abomination. It is what we call a, tra- a traditionalist interpretive framework is what you are working from. Are you familiar with frameworks? No, great, because that's my baby and that's my, my, that's my soapbox, so we will get to that soon, okay? But the good thing about this particular statement is if they are able to indicate on their website or wherever they advertise that in fact they don't have a space for LBGT people, we've got to commend them for actually being honest because they're not trying to mislead you. Alright? So if that's where you're at in your congregation or as a leader, hopefully we can move you forward a couple of steps. Welcoming. Often I would have assumed that welcoming was a really good thing. However, they have an open door policy, but there are cravats around belonging, relationship status, membership, baptism, baptism and communion. Leadership positions are unlikely, I should say, my apologies, are unlikely. Pastoral accommodation may be expected, reparative therapy required again, traditionalist interpretive framework. I would like to suggest that any church that has welcoming on its website is a definite red flag. It is misleading. Because they're not saying that they're unwelcoming, they're saying you can come and as soon as you've been embedded into our community, we will work at changing you, however we need to do that. And that is heartbreaking for people. It is much more damaging than finding a community that says they're unwelcome. Inclusive. This is where a lot of churches may find themselves that have turned up to this particular conference. The work individually or congregationally has begun and is often done by the church leaders. So at that top level, the pastoral, the, the eldership team, the governance team, they may have done some work and they have, they have asserted that they want to be inclusive and perhaps affirming. But the problem here is that this has not yet trickled down to the congregation. So if you have somebody that turns up from the LBGT community, um, understanding that your community is inclusive, and yet there is somebody perhaps on the prayer team, somebody within a ministry position that is not on board with this, then you still have the same problems. You have the potential for the hurt and the damage. It's a great place to start. So let's commend that. But we need to go a bit further than that. Um, from here, what often happens is people are moving moving towards what we call a revisionist framework um, rather than the, uh, the traditionalist framework. Affirming. So here is where we step into a community that is fully affirming. There's no barriers. People can get married 
from the LBGTQA community. They are offered communion, they are offered baptism, they can serve and they can be employed into positions of leadership. Now you'll be amazed how many welcoming churches will say they will not give baptism or communion to LBGT people. So these are the red flags, okay? There's one ethic for all. Not everyone has to agree, but there is a common understanding of equity within your community. And the revisionist interpretive framework is most definitely the foundation for this type of community. And then there's liberating. Liberating is where individually or congregationally deliberate expressions and actions to promote allyship, human rights issues and equity alongside LBGTQA people. This is the aim and this is the outworking. So it's not lip service, it is giving a hands dirty. And again, the revisionist reparative framework is what we're looking for. Does that make a little bit of sense? Where do you think your church sits on those positions? Who thinks the church sits on unwelcoming? What happens if you have about three churches? <laughs> <laughs> That's okay, let's see the because you might have different answers. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so nobody here would consider themselves <coughs> an unwelcoming church. Welcoming? Inclusive. Yep, yep, no, you're right. So, sorry? I think that's the important between welcoming and inclusive. There's some bits of. So, you can stretch those two? Yep, okay, let's let's leave that one there. That's good. Inclusive. So, I know that your church is doing some work, yet to trickle down. And no statement in the. Well, something in our belonging document. State specifically, no, just you know, love each other irrespective of gender, um, sexuality, race, abilities, um, but not, but nothing on the website. Or, just, as Sean found out when he was applying for the job, there's not much of anything on our website. (laughs) (laughs) So that's now on the list, Sean. (laughs) <laughs> Working with your team to, to know what you want to say. Um, Fairly. So I would have claimed that Albany and was is a firm, except when I was hamstrung by the denominational rules. So our congregation mm-hmm. was kind of as a firm yeah. as you could be, but I still couldn't marry. Right. you baptise? Yeah, like everything yeah. else. Yeah. Everything was important. <coughs> So you have negotiated what your boundaries are and you've worked your way, not through it, but around it. <coughs> yep, and that, that may be the very best that you're able to do under that denomination at this stage. Anybody liberating? <coughs> I can say that because I don't belong to any particular denomination, <laughs> but I am a spiritual director, so my work is all about liberation, no matter what you're yeah. yeah. 
Did you have a question at the back? Oh no, I was just saying we've got a little frame of group. Yeah, but yes, yes. I'm also um, chair of a youth organisation and we have deliberate uh, rainbow sessions as well. Throughout the North Island, so um, that's all there. Okay, so Ben. Yeah, I'm, I'm a bit of a weird space on the <coughs> here on, on behalf of the school, which serves a quite a traditional, quite a traditional, traditionally Christian community. Um, so that's the interesting space where we're mm. trying to uh, trying to be affirming, but also navigate the expectations of. Fano, mm-hmm. um, so that's the challenge mm-hmm. we're currently facing, yeah. and why I'm here. So hopefully there'll be at least a couple of nuggets in here that you can take back to start working on. Again, we're not going to offer a formula, but it's for you to go, that's something that we can look at for our community. You may have it later, but any guesses on how churches in New Zealand on average, what percentage will fit into the next? Welcome. Most of the or more would would like to call themselves welcome (laughs) without understanding what it means. Yeah, Yeah. but I think for our LGBTQ rainbow community, when they see the word welcoming, all they see is red flag. So if you're part of a church community that is trying to engage with the rainbow community, welcoming is not going to do you any good. Okay. Where would you where would you like to locate yourself? Yeah. So leave the church and get your automatically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not promoting that. <laughs> um, so frameworks. So frameworks are incredibly important. So uh, wherever I go, this is David Gushy. He says he runs into three different responses to LBGTQA people, faith and scripture. Each response comes from an interpretive framework, a structure through which we have been taught to understand scripture, whether we realise it or not. So for me, growing up in an Anglican and Open Brethren Church, I had no idea that there was more than one interpretive framework. So the framework that I was standing on, the framework that determined my lens of interpreting scripture is what we call a traditionist framework. Now you may think that a traditionist framework, because of the word tradition, is a very old framework. But it's not. It's actually at best 200 years old. And that's probably being genius. But because we live in it, because we swim in it, because it's the water that we are in, we are often unaware that there are other frameworks that are actually life-giving and flourishing. And we are also taught that to read outside of this particular interpretation of Scripture is unfaithful. I would like to suggest that the invitation, the holy invitation, is for us to read outside our confirmation bias and let God do the work. There's also a third one in there, and Gushi calls it the avoiders. Um, And these are the people that know they need to make the change, that are aware that there is another framework that is life-giving, but because it doesn't affect them personally, 
or perhaps because it's going to affect their position, or perhaps it's going to affect their back pocket, they choose not to move. And it may seem a little impolite, the word avoiders, but Gushi does not apologise. Okay? So these are the people that, until someone in their family comes along, that comes out, or maybe even if someone maybe. comes out, they are still willing to be an avoider. Because for them, they perceive the cost is too high. They may also just perceive that they're being unfaithful. And I understand that. But we don't excuse it. We don't let it fly. The revisionist framework, actually let's just go through these. So here's the traditionist framework. Fundamentally, traditionists claim that same-sex intimate relationships violate physical union and divinely intended complementary. And down the side, it's quoted by Brownson, but Brownson would not agree with that statement. Okay, But it is quoted in his book. Many factors, including cultural, political, and religious attitude and practices, influence how we, the church, make plain sense, in quotation marks, of scripture. How we read it, how we think we know what it's saying, without any contextual context behind it. Within this framework, some will determine that LBGTQA sexuality and identity is a deliberate sinful choice towards acts of lust, or rebellion against church, family, God, or self. This is what I was taught, that this is an act of rebellion and perversion, and lust. While others may acknowledge the reality of genuine rainbow sexuality identity, they prescribe lifelong celibacy and what we call side B. So you can be gay, but you cannot be in a relationship. That also means you can't date, and celibacy means you're not supposed to be entering into any romantic or sexual thought life. Good luck. <laughs> While the title tradition suggests that a long tradition of understanding, and I'll put 150 years there, which even wasn't continuous. Revisionist. So when we hear the word revisionist, my automatic reaction to that was, oh, it must be kind of eerie theory. You know, vision, uh, you know, new agey, but actually revisionist theology and interpretation goes way back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. It's not until, and Colin brought this up at one of the other sessions that we had today, it wasn't until actually the early 1900s that words like homosexuality were put into our Bibles. They were words that were used by the medical and psychological profession to describe homosexuality and heterosexuality as people who had overly lustful and overly eager interactions of sex. The unfortunate thing is homosexuality has been put into the disgraceful bucket and heterosexuality has been put into the holy bucket. Both of those terms mean the same thing towards different genders. So our understanding of words and language is actually really important. Right. Revisionist scholars discern that what the Bible says about non-heterosexuality, and again, non-heterosexuality or heterosexuality or homosexuality 
are not words that ever existed in the ancient world context. It's not applicable to today's committed convention, convention LBG-shared relationship. I'm getting a bit tongue-tied today. I've done so much talking. Okay. So through the advancement of science, biology, and human experiences, the church has deliberately has deliberated and diverged from original context, biblical, and doctrine throughout history on many issues. So we have moved on many things that we now have more knowledge about um, in many different areas, and yet the church still seems to want to remain stuck regardless of um, evidence that is brought to them. But the revisionist framework does not do that. It works with the um, with the change of thought patterns and ideology and with evidence that it is presented with. So some of the things that we have changed our minds on include that the sun revolves around the earth. Flat earth theories. I'm making a comeback, Amanda. Uh, yeah. I, I know, they're still out there. <laughs> um, slavery, interracial relationships, divorce, women in leadership and their sexuality. These are the things that the church has had to change on. And if you're a fan of Phyllis Tickle, she writes a brilliant book called The Great Emergence. And she talks about how every 500 years, the church has what she calls a rubbish sale, where the rubbish gets thrown out and burned. And she would suggest that the rainbow discussion now is that 500-year rubbish sale. What do we need to throw out? We heard the conversation in the other room, some of us, um, around churches or organisations being unwilling to move and often it was around things that no longer hold any meaning for us. So I wonder what is in the rummage sale that needs to be burned. Revisionists do not consider non-heterosexuality, identity, orientation, attraction or expression a choice or a deliberate act of rebellion. They support a sexual and relational ethic that includes a con conventional, monogamous, and consensual relationship, which we now know as Site A. However, a small minority within the revisionist framework may still maintain that lifelong celibacy is appropriate as a choice. Very few but there are still people or scholars within that revisionist framework that would still suggest celibacy is the only option. And the avoiders. Um, so the traditionists and the revisionist advocates might air their views with candidness. And believe me, they do. Um, when I was doing my literature review, um, there were books that... I started to read, I have to read them, but they made me so angry. The language that they used, I actually ended up throwing them against the back wall once I had finished, because I just felt revolted, by the, just by the language that was used in it. And so the third framework maintains a non-defined or avoidance position, evading the discussion for as long as possible. Non-defined or avoidance factors might include theological uncertainty, genuine conviction uncertainty, fear of hurting people, attempts to be non-biased. They might be attempting to be peacekeepers rather than peacemakers. 
conflict or schism avoidance, denominational constitutions, we know that they are smack in the middle, criticism of peer groups and self-preservation, including future or current employment, um, equality, equally and awareness of credible resources might contribute. So what happens, uh, especially for scholars who come out, they will often lose their, um, their book rights, their speaking rights, their jobs, um, there is a big cost. However, because they are willing to take those risks and those costs, then we have this huge array of revisionist framework literature and research that has been done that can move us not only forward, but also back further in the traditionalist framework. Seems a little to the bottom trying to hold both views just in the 40s. Yeah. Making it forward. Yeah. Yeah. So, what happens to both parties when we do that? Is, is anybody happy? What a context. <laughs> Hello. Um, I think what's, yeah, what, one of the reasons we're kind of unpacking this in layers is because as we talk about how to help this journey toward affirming and or liberating, celebrating of that, um, is that actually knowing the context of the conversation, knowing where we are, who we're talking to, where they are. Um, as someone who still um, teaches theology, one of the things I'm often getting or asking students to think about, which they often haven't thought about before until they come and sit in the classroom, is is not just the conclusions, but how we arrive at the conclusions. And, and what they usually want to do, typically, when they come into a classroom, is immediately jump into a conversation about their, the topics they want to talk about. And uh, what I try and do is slow that down. And say, well, let's, let's just start by talking about how we even talk about how we even talk about these things. And so these frameworks, I think, uh, matter in the conversation in terms of helping people on this journey because. If we don't know where we are and where they are, what perspective we're coming from and they're coming from, then it's very difficult to have any of those conversations in a way that will be meaningful. Uh, so that's, that's, um, that's super helpful context stuff. I want to think about some of the other aspects of the context we find ourselves in to have these conversations. Um, and some of this might seem like stating the obvious at times, but I think it's just good to name and be conscious of and be aware of. So our faith context that we find ourselves in is shaped by cultural, theological, historical forces. Right? So we find ourselves at a particular point in time. Uh, we find ourselves um, in differing contexts. Um, so um, a lot of Anglicans around. I noticed that. You Anglicans around? That's nice. Um, or people from various traditions, right? And each of those traditions has its own theological history. Each of those traditions has its own um, kind of cultural history as well. And so when conversations are taking place in those different spaces, this is one of the reasons we started by saying there's no formula, because those different contexts mean those conversations will happen different, different ways of approaching scripture, you know, all sorts of different um, factors that shape the context we, we find ourselves in. Um, and then there's obviously culture, even in terms of, you know, we've heard, I've heard a little bit today, um, the conversation around um, like ethnic 
Rainbow Fault and the particular challenges they might have in this conversation as well. So there are this multitude of factors feeding into these, the various conversations as they're happening around the place. Um, and then we have the immediate context you might find yourself in, what I might find myself in, which is who are the actual leaders, the members of this community um, that we are seeking to journey with, whether that's um, a community that is might even be just family, or it might be faith community. Um, what are, who, who are the leaders? Who are, how do the members of that community actually shape what that community is? Uh, and where it finds itself in the surrounding community. So one of the things um, we've found as a church in relatively the inner city in Auckland is that we are, um, we're part of it. Our church is part of a, a network, like a relational network, so it's not a denomination. But um, we find ourselves, um, when we get together and, and chat with, I don't know, church leaders from... Masterton or Fielding or wherever, wherever they might be around the country, that there are different sets of questions, different realities, perhaps um, in their spaces. I don't know that there's um, less queer people in those spaces, but they're often um, more hidden, actually, than they are in somewhere like the inner city in, in Auckland. And so that's going to have an impact on the nature of those conversations. And, and, and often leaders in those churches will be like, oh, that's something you guys in Auckland deal with, but we don't have any you know, gay people in our town. Um, <laughs> no, they, don't, they don't necessarily quite go that far, but that's the sense you get sometimes, you know. But it's actually just that in our context, it's more visible. Um, but it's very much present in those other spaces. So, And then the form of the community itself. And that is, I guess, a reflection on my own experience, which is that I, um, I'm involved in leading a church. And then I also have this online space that has become its own kind of community, albeit a different one, where I sit in a room and ramble at myself, but just happened to press record. Um, but, but I hear there is, a, um, there is a back and forth in the sense that um, there is a community forming around that whole online experience that is quite different from what's happening in church space. Uh, and so if I am thinking about how to journey through with my church community, then that church community and the conversations we have there as we help people journey towards affirming depend a lot on the people in that community and where they're at and what they're going through and how they're processing. And then when I shift over here and record a conversation on the podcast, um, I'm like, well, this is a conversation that might be shared as a resource to people to listen to. And I, so I want to be cut straight to the... I'm, I'm going to... You know, I'm not... In, in this context, I might have the conversation slightly differently than I have over here because the context shifts. Does that make, make sense? Yeah. yeah. Um, and then there's just the wider context, and this is something we've very much found in our conversation with the church, is that um, something I mentioned, I think, this morning and sometime, uh, is that these conversations that we're having around um, affirming LGBT plus folk are connected to lots of other conversations about our faith. And for some, it can feel, and this is part of the fear some people have. What happens if we start pulling that thread? And then we keep pulling, and then, um, and then the jersey, to push the metaphor too far, has, has, has gone. Um, so, but it's a very important realisation to recognise that when we ask questions about that, these are going to be connected to all of these other different things. Um, and if we're in a community where we've always talked about the Bible very literally, wanted a better word, or maybe from the traditionalist perspective, 
then there might be some work to do before you talk about this thing to help people understand that by the time you get to there, they've got some framework to start to hang it on. Yeah? Um, and so bearing in mind kind of where your community is at on that, I think is a very kind of important and helpful thing. Right, we go to the, go to the next one? Um, so here's some questions that can help us think, uh, in particular within a church community, but I think these questions can apply to different forms of community. Um, how does leadership function in your church? Um, and that might be complicated by denominational structures as well, which I know it is for many people. Um, and I put that there, I guess, because some churches have very flat leadership structures. Some churches have very hierarchical leadership structures. Some leadership is collaborative and some is not. Uh, some churches have um, hierarchical structures beyond the immediate congregation that dictate a lot of what happens in the local congregation. Some have autonomous, you know, auto- much more autonomy. And so these are all things to think about in terms of how we facilitate the kinds of conversations we need to have, who needs to be talked to along the way, um, and, and that kind of stuff. Um, how did your community initiate change? And this is a broader question around what's the process within a community when talking about challenging things, when talking about change? Because this is not the only conversation where, the, you know, I, I think the church is having to wrestle with its terrible ecological perspective, right? With its awful uh, eco-theology, or lack of. And, um, and so there is change, much change needed. How does our community go, go through that process of change? Um, again, I'm not really giving answers, but what I am trying to do is uh, here's some questions to be asking ourselves that will help us have the kind of conversations in the way that we need to have them. Um, how did your community read and apply the Bible? I mean, does your community read the Bible? This probably our question. Um, which Bible? Do they which read? Bible do they read? Which you know, um, I would say that um, most of the young people coming through our churches don't ever read the Bible. Actually, that's probably true, true in our church. Um, which is actually okay. But the Bible was a community book before it was ever a personal, individual book. So I'm actually okay with that. We can talk about it together, and sometimes that's quite healthy. The pressure to have a personal understanding of the entire scriptures is not necessarily something that every 17-year-old can get their head around. Um, so, and shouldn't. And shouldn't. That's right. This kind of assumption that anybody should be able to pick up a historical document and immediately make sense of it. I think it's done a church a bit of damage, actually. Um, so how does your community read the Bible? How does it apply the Bible? How does it make sense of the Bible? Because that, the answer to those questions are going to shape how we have those conversations around those, some of those texts, perhaps. Or, you know, I just loved this session this morning because I think I have, even in the academic world, bumped into a lot of people who might have come to terms with the fact that the, um, that the so-called clobber verses can't be used that way, but they keep returning to Genesis 1 and Matthew 19. Mm-hmm as the grounds for their exclusionary theology. And so to hear Steph just pull that apart today was fabulous. Wonderful. Uh, anyway, I digress. Uh, and how does your community talk about ethics and morals? How do we talk about behaviour in our church? How do we talk about what is um, good practice? And, you know, um, if you have very um, sort of um, behavioural modification schemes at work in your church, and if so, maybe we need to 
dig some of that up along the way also and ask what are the deeper questions around ethics that we need to be wrestling with as, as people of faith in the 21st century. Um, it's very comforting sometimes to be able to say, here are all the rules for how we are to live. Uh, the only problem is that the rules don't seem to work for just about everybody. Uh, so what do we actually do with, um, with the very real lives of the people in Africa? And I think wrestling with some of that, um, you know, sat down with someone the other day who was struggling with this very conversation, journey toward affirming, and is coming at it from this very black and white perspective, but, you know, but this is what the text says. And so we dive into a conversation about the very real pastoral situations that we might bump into in the life of our community. And suddenly things got very grey and complex and nuanced very quickly. It's like, hang on, oh, okay. Um, maybe things just aren't as clear-cut. And I think there's, um, when it's treated as this abstract issue, that's a big part of the problem. Yes, cool. Okay, what's next? Oh, Frosty's example. That's me, Frosty. Uh, so a lot of people call me Frosty, because my last name's Frost. So you can call me Frosty if you like. Uh, Frosty the Snowman, even better. Yes. Uh, many, many times in my life have I been called that. Jack, been called Jack. Not all of those. Frosty boy, absolutely. Yeah, often licked, never beaten. Slightly alluring catchphrase. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about how, in terms of the process, and I mentioned a little bit in the, someone asked a question in the coming out as a church session, for those who are in there, just in terms of like this process through for us in our community, and I think what we did, to to use Amanda's categories, is we were moving from inclusive to affirmative. So we had been inclusive for a number of years, but in a way where those conversations had kind of happened with some of the leaders, perhaps the most pivotal leaders, historically, (coughs) and had filtered through into a lot of the practices in the church. And so people knew they were welcome um, through personal conversations and being told that in pastoral catch-ups. And not just welcome, but they were able to bring their full selves. But um, that hadn't happened in like a more thoroughgoing, systematic, let's talk about this properly as a, as a community kind of way. And so we embarked on that process. Um, we sat down with, we have um, different layers of, of leadership within our community. So we have um, three of us who are like the core leaders of the community. And then um, we have a katiaki, who are, I guess eldership would be like maybe a word that, that resembles that. Uh, then we have a group called Ngapo, who are like the, um, if you think about the whare and the po that hold up the whare. So they are kind of a wider leadership group. And... Um, and so we had a series of conversations over time, uh, and also sitting down with Rainbow Fano in our church, and asking them what their experience was like, um, how, what, how affirmed did they feel, what would they feel would be helpful to be said, did they want to contribute to that conversation, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. Um, at a senior kind of katiaki level, there were reading and there was there was discussion to make sure that we were all on the same page there for sure. Um, lest we accidentally blow things up without, uh, before we even got out of the starting gate. Uh, and then those conversations um, flowed, I guess, through all of those different spaces. Now, that made sense for us as a community because of the way we're structured, how we make decisions, 
we've formed a collaborative way of making decisions together as a community. And so um, in that provided space, both to have a conversation and then if you'd like to process that, let's have a chat. Um, if you don't want to do that here, then we can do that. And so some conversations with people who are wrestling with different parts of it were able to come and have a conversation. I was able to say, here, here's something you can read, here's something you can listen to, here's something you can engage with, and then let's circle back around and talk again. Um, now, we sort of had this interesting thing, which is that we were preparing to have this conversation in COVID. Day. And um, so suddenly we were in lockdown. And then we faced this weird thing um, of like, when is the right time to have the conversation? Uh, more, more publicly with the whole church and take everybody on that journey. And it seemed like we were sort of, you know, we'd go into lockdown and we'd come out and it was like, well, it doesn't feel like that should be the first thing we talk about on the first Sunday back. Um, it also wasn't something we wanted to talk about over Zoom because we wanted to be able to be in the room, share kai together afterwards and have an opportunity to talk and, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So, um, so we had to try and discern, and, and as much as it frustrated me a lot, there was this tension of when's the right time to have it and also there'll never be a right time to have it and trying to hold those kind of things together. So um, we went into lockdown, came out and then prepared ourselves to have the conversation, put it on the plan and then we're back into lockdown again and then came out and then sort of gathered everyone together. And then So we went through that kind of about three or four times of preparing to have the conversation and then sort of having to go back, go back home. It was life in Auckland. We had a horrendously long lockdown and... 2021, wasn't it? For those who are not any Aucklanders. Yeah, yeah that, was a, that was a painful six months. Um, with the borders to the city shut. Um, anyway, so what, what that all meant was that having the broader conversation with the whole community happened much later than, than I think we wanted it to. And by that time, we were clearly affirming in practice and, you know, people were... You know, certainly, you know, we have a time in our service when people stand up and share news and get chocolates and get applauded for various things and, were, you know, same-sex engagements and my, my, my child came out and, you know, all these different... All this is kind of happening. Um, amazingly, when we went to then have the conversation with the church, there were still people who, there that had just kind of flown all <laughs> over their heads, you know. And this is the importance of being clear because um, the default assumption in so many people still is... We're, we're welcoming, but we're not real, you know, we're not on board. And so no ma- almost no matter what you say or do, unless you come out and definitely say it, they just assume that you're being nice. And so it was interesting even then, in, a ver- in what felt like a very clearly affirming church, that there were still people for whom it was a surprise, <laughs> uh, which kind of shocked me. Like, Have you been, like, paying attention for a while? Um, the last thing I'll say about that, and then I'll shut up, sorry, um, is that... One of the things we did last year, before we talked about LGBT inclusion, was we re-established some church values and talked through our church values. Uh, And we had shaped those values in a way that definitely was connected to this conversation. So that when we came to talk about affirming LGBT folk, um, plus folk in the church, it was clearly connected to the values that we had spent some time laying out. And in fact, interestingly, some people at the end of the values chat kind of saw the writing on the wall, so to speak, and decided to exit then, even though we hadn't talked about sexuality at all, um, in, a, in a specific sense. Um, they could clearly see where the conversation was going. But what it did help most people with, I think, was just to, like, it was just layers of unfolding something that helped them to figure out how they could actually be okay with what was happening. Because there's a lot of fear. 
that they are somehow, as we've heard today, being unfaithful. Um, but in reality, what we're helping them to see is that this is the most deeply faithful way to be Christian. So, yes, that's me. So part of that value set that Frosty just touched on there is what is your ethic as a community? What do you want to be known for? And this might be something like Mitch that you can take back to yours where it's either that value set or the ethic set and they actually should dovetail usually in together. Um, so again from Gushi, I don't think we've even begun to touch on the deepest meaning of the LBGT plus issue when you can find that issue to being a sexual ethic issue. It's a marginalisation of vulnerable people issue. It's a human dignity issue. It's a mental health issue and it's a spiritual abuse issue. So when we talk about values and ethics, we are not just talking about a sexual issue. We are talking about the whole sexual ethic for how you want to run and be known for as your community and church. So ethics reflect on all people. The interactions on freedom, equity, responsibility and on justice. This is an ethic. It is the outworking of these characteristics. Our understanding and practice widens and our knowing of self, other and God deepens as we lean in and listen and learn anew. Does it remain applicable for just for a just and equitable society today? And this is the question we need to keep asking as we formulate our ethic for our community. Does it remain applicable to the science, to the evidence that we are showing, to the stories that we're hearing, to the lived reality for a just and equitable society? So when I grew up, I grew up in the purity sexual ethic, where as a woman I was only clean and holy if I abstained from any sexual activity, all sexual activity, until I was married. I got married at 19. I am still married to the same man. Thankfully, I had the common sense to find somebody that would grow up with me and not grow away from me. But my, both of us, our sexual ethic was one of the purity culture. Counselors today, especially Christian counselors, are being trained now in how to undo the purity culture damage. Even as a pastor with young adults, I was still promoting sexual ethic around purity. And I have had to apologise not only to my young adult community when I see them, but also to my own adult children. Because it actually gave them stumbling blocks as well. And there's also me. I have to undo a whole heap of stuff as well and also in the process of doing that. So what, if we were to take our sexual ethic out of the box and just put it to the side, what might another ethic look like? And one of those things I want to suggest is a relational ethic. And the three that I'm going to suggest here may all dovetail into precisely what you want as a community or you may need to go back to the drawing board and figure out what works for you. So a relational ethic is shaped on virtue. It's shaped on good character, fruits of the spirit, 
and a disposition and outcome of edifying love. That is what I call a relational essay, where we treat each other with an outcome of edifying love. Now, sounds very idealistic, right? But we have to have something to aim for. A flourishing ethic. I love this because I think a flourishing ethic is a life-giving ethic. And I'm not sure that our current sexual ethic is life-giving. So, could we replace that with a flourishing ethic? Is it life-affirming or is it life-denying? Does it bring people into God's presence or further away? Does it allow people to thrive or merely survive? Is it edifying and life-giving, embodying equity citizenship? Is this what you want to be known for as what you're aiming towards as a community? A flourishing ethic for all that is life-giving and brings people closer into the presence and understanding of God. A covenant ethic. Now we often frame that as a marriage, but I just want to just set that aside and perhaps suggest that it's a lifelong, um, with the intention of lifelong, unitive, honouring companionship. Now how that looks within your community, you need to decide that. So often we think about a covenant as a marriage. Now we know that over 50% of our marriages and churches are broken and failing and done and dusted. So can we come up with a better ethic of flourishing and relational and a covenant ethic that will help us grow? So to becoming, you know, when I hear, we hear it all the time, to becoming one, I am now aware that my immediate go-to is that the one and the one lose each other and become one, right? But one and one doesn't equal that. You still need to remain the person that you are and you become, in essence, a third person together. Does that make more sense? Mm. Right? Because so many, especially from a female perspective, in a, in a Christian marriage, we are expected to lose ourselves. So could we come up with a covenant ethic that actually encourages us to remain the person that God has made us to be and yet be better with somebody else if we can find that person? Does that make sense? That's not to say that people who are single are not better, but perhaps they have a better opportunity to lean into really who they are as one person. So I promise a covenant before God and a community is that a covenant ethic that to do this promise before family, before community. Expressing and and strengthening emotional, spiritual, mental and physical connection. Could that be your framework? That might be a step too far for some. You may want to step back into the marriage ethic but you also need to know if you're looking at a, an equity marriage or a, what's the other word? It's slipped my mind. Complementarian. Yeah, egalitarian. Egalitarian, So even those have its own good things. So as a community, again, 
can you find something around the relational ethic, a flowing sheet ethic, a covenant ethic? So are you, so are you saying um, egalitarian and complementarian, that the suggestion is for these to replace both of those in terms of the conversation? Maybe. Maybe. Is it, you know, is the relationship one that is life-giving? Is it flourishing? Um, I would never move away from egalitarian, but maybe we can we can expand on that so that, and this is the same thing again, you still remain the person God has made you to be. One on one equals three. Yeah. Yeah, I think too many of us are losing ourselves. Yeah, I was just thinking it's, it's actually quite beautiful to have some new words because those are so loaded yeah. and there is the which one are you yeah. and how important is it to you yeah. um, and will I have anything to do with you if you are one or the other whereas this is a new language <coughs> so is it shaped on virtue is it shaped on good character fruits of the spirit and the disposition of outcome and outcome of being fine one of the things that I was taught growing up is that Queer people do not display the fruits of the Spirit. Because they couldn't possibly have the Holy Spirit in them because they're rebelling against God, family and church. I have been ministered to this weekend more than I have been ministered to probably over the last five years by people who have the fruits of the Spirit. Amen. Yeah. 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 So your ethic needs to recognise that in all bodies and all expressions. Do they display the fruits of the Spirit? Maybe that's just the only answer we need. Um, so we also look within, when we're creating an ethic, we look at consent, and purity culture did not teach very much about consent. Uh, we look at care, covenant, communication, connection. We look at edification, mutuality, and spirituality. So those are some of the considerations when you're shaping the effect for your community. Danger zones. How are we doing, guys? You with us? Okay. So every community, as we have said, and this is why we don't give you a formula, you will all have your own unique danger zones. Who might be directly affected? Now, this includes people that um, are part of the rainbow community in your community but may have not come out yet or they have come out and this will directly affect them. We've got to be careful that we don't put a spotlight on people that do not want the spotlight. That is not fair. That might not be the way that God has put them together to cope with that sort of exposure. Alright? So who might be directly affected? It might be parents of someone who has come out. Do you need to go and have a conversation with them and go, hey, we're looking at creating a new ethic. Would you like to be part of that group? Without even talking about rainbow community, what does an ethic look like for you as a community? And it's the same thing that Frosty was talking about the values. It's the same thing, dovetails. What do you want to be known for? And then from there it filters out into all these other areas, including sexuality. So who might be directly affected? Who might need to be protected, considered, listened to, or advised? So who really does need protecting? Okay, so you may have people who have come out, and all of a sudden they are the lightning rod for people. 
So you need to protect them. You need to let them know that you've got their back, that you are there at the end of the phone, and that you will stand in the gap for them as an ally. You might also need to figure out who needs to be advised. Who do you know that is going to have a visceral effect to creating a new effect? Who can you identify in your community that is going to stick their heels in and perhaps even hold you to ransom financially? Because you might need to go and have a chat with them before you do the ethics conversation and go, this is what we're going to be doing. We'd love for you to be on board, but we understand if you can't do this, we will help you find another place of worship. <laughs> I think maybe if you figure out who the sticky people might need to get rid of them quickly <laughs> before they just others. Yeah, I think having a conversation with them, um, a timely conversation so they can't yeah. disrupt, yeah. but also to be really, really clear that this is the conversation we are going to be having. Mm. And you will feel uncomfortable and we invite you into that holy uncomfortable. Mm. But if you're unlikely to change or you're going to find it difficult, yeah, you might want to sit this out. Yeah. I think you do get a sense pretty pretty quickly when you're chatting to people. Mm. Whether they are someone who's just struggling to get their head around it but are willing to wrestle mm. versus those who will talk to you for seven hours but there's yeah. no chance they're going to budge an inch. Yeah. So it's over their dead body. Yeah. 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 Then they would be so. Yeah. 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 One of the challenges, we're in the middle of a church replant. Um, we've gone through a huge change in the last two years um, with building, with leadership. We now find ourselves in the privileged position of being based right in the centre of Cuba Street in Wellington. Diverse, you know, immigrant, student, homeless, LGBT, you know, it's all there. Now, most of our congregation are just loving it because they see the potential. We have those who are still with us who are. I wasn't, this was not really what I was, what I was signing up with. Some have been congregations for generations. And we're now finding that the narrative from our leadership is starting to change. It was for a long time invitational partnership. Now that narrative is starting to say, okay, rubber hits the road. This is where we are as a church. It's what we're doing. Maybe. We have to, as a church, release you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you know what? There's 99% of churches that they can go to. Yeah. There is plenty of room yeah. in the yeah. of God for them to move into. Yeah. It's okay. Change is hard. The, yeah. old, the older we get, the harder it is. But I like that concept of releasing our people yes, to go to blessing. another congregation. Yes, and even, no, I've even suggested that you find a, or they find a church that is a possibility for them, and yeah. you go with them to meet the pastor there yeah. or the vicar, and, and commend them and recommend yeah. them, mm. and because yeah. because that you know they have been part of your community, you want to bless them on. Now, if they're a stickler and they throw their toys out, then that's their choice. Yeah. Which is what they've been. Yeah, yeah, it may do. And we part of me that has a suspicion of new people now that are coming in is like, are they coming to run from somewhere that's mm-hmm. been yeah. yeah, yeah. And this is why you need to be clear on your website yes. because you don't want those troublemakers that won't that don't yeah. want to move coming into your community. Yeah. Okay, so that's mm-hmm. clear as kind. 
but for all of your community and anyone else coming in. Who might feel excluded? So this is the group that has always been included and is now feeling excluded because they have to give some of their power and privilege up when they do And it is hard. It is hard. But this is about equity and this comes back to your ethic of flourishing and relational. So when they go, oh, but does that mean that I, you know, I can no longer say kufta? Yeah, does that fit in with our flourishing ethic or our relational ethic? So you tell me, does that fit in? Are we allowed to do that anymore? So when you've, do, when you've got your ethic, you can always point back to it. Tell me, does that fit into our ethic? You don't have to answer it. We might be indirectly affected. I think we've probably covered most of that. Um, and what is the domination cost? There will be costs, but the thing is, one of the things that I wanted to say in the group that was in here, the church leadership, was, and again it comes back to Phyllis Tickle's um, rubbish zone. How much rubbish do we need to get rid of before we can start rebuilding? And maybe the rummage sale is actually a holy invitation for the church to flourish. We always talk about the loss of people or people living in a negative sense. But what if they're finding God in the wilderness? What if the church is actually in a tent in the wilderness? As a spiritual director, this is something that I find a lot, is people that have left their church, their faith community, because their lived reality and their theology no longer fits. They can't do it. And part of my role as a spiritual director is to help them realise that they are already the church, the tent in the wilderness, and it's not a scary place because there's thousands of tents there. So that was a very subtle there we go. So, remember who is at the centre. How are we going for time? What are we... You've got about another 20 minutes. Oh, uh, We will be, when we finish here, just a heads up, we're being asked to just uh, come together as a full conference next door before we go for dinner. So, uh... um, I just wanted to, to make a comment about uh, remembering who's at the centre of this conversation and... Especially I'm speaking, I suppose, to, to allies in the space who might be in church leadership who are looking to, um, or who are looking to work in some way toward um, helping people go on this journey, toward whom. Um, I, I wanted to name this kind of thing, it's been something that's come up a bit today, and I came up in our last conversation uh, through there, which is the tendency of the church to be the most conservative voices, we're just hearing about that in terms of who might feel excluded suddenly. Uh, and what we have are people who historically have been at the centre of most aspects of um, their experience of life and certainly their experience of faith and church. Um, and in some respects, what I see sometimes is uh, a tendency to, to, to feel like, well, the... The LGBT folk, and I don't know that it's said out loud like this, but I think this is kind of what's going on, 
are used to being marginalised, so they can kind of they're really good at that. Do you know what I'm? Yeah. I, I don't think we say it like this, but I think this is what's actually happening. Whereas these poor, um, poor uh, straight <laughs> privileged people in the middle aren't used to this at all. And so we don't want to make them uncomfortable, even if it means continuing to make these people over here feel excluded that have always felt excluded. And I just think we need to be able to name that. It's, a, it's, a, it's almost a subconscious um, impulse in the church to just keep protecting the people who have always been protected. And so I just want to name that and say we actually have to deal with that. One of the ways we've dealt with that, I think, in our community is through the way we've talked about Jesus' vision of the kingdom as a complete upending of privilege, power, and status. Um, my reflection even last night and this morning was just how badly we've done our theology, I suppose, in reflecting on Scripture that um, we see in Scripture people being challenged um, by prophetic voices uh, about their sin. Usually that's the sin of oppression, exclusion, exclusion and judgment. Uh, and the people who are being most often challenged and confronted and called to repentance are the people with power. And the people who are being empowered and told that they are blessed, like we were hearing last night, uh, and told that they are, their identity is in Christ, these are the people who are vulnerable in the edges. And unfortunately what the church has done is kind of switch that around and tell the people who are already pretty privileged that they're even more empowered. I mean, I grew up in a Pentecostal church and we were all about our affirmations. Name it and claim it and blab it and grab it and so on. Um, and we've just flipped it completely upside down. The, the judgment is directed at the vulnerable people and the empowerment is directed at those who already have power. And so that requires us to talk about the nature of the gospel itself, the nature of the kingdom of God that's going to upend that and offer a different way of being Christian. So um, that's, that's, I guess, the other thing that we've mentioned here is often the conservative voices are the rich ones. So, um, like Jesus, be prepared to kick, some to kick some tables, to lose some followers, to end up uh, sleeping in the <laughs> desert. I don't know. Uh, Jesus didn't seem particularly concerned with um, preserving his, his money flows uh, at the expense of a vision of the kingdom. So we just got to suck it up for those who are allies who are who are holding on for fear of losing something um yes um i noticed that you're male i am Um, (laughs) and i love hearing when a lot of these people are talking about and my experience uh white men um and i guess i'd love to hear more and more white men making the challenges that you're making how has that been for you with other white privileged people? <laughs> because as a white privileged woman, there's lots of things I can say, but, you know. How has that been for me? Um, yeah, I feel like I have a, a particular offering I, I can bring to the conversation, right? Um, and... Um, it's, it's not always um, popular. And, you know, I think one of the things I've been doing in the last couple of years is trying to speak about all of the ways in which religious systems have been creating incredibly toxic and harmful spaces. And a lot of that comes out of um, patriarchy. A lot of it comes out of um, the imbalance of power and the way power has been used and the way in which uh, Christian faith has been used as a tool of oppression rather than of liberation. 
Uh, and that has certainly... Um, there are some people to which that has not endeared me. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I, I think we need... There is, there is work, I think, that someone like me needs to do, having been given a certain amount of privilege and power in society, just by the nothing that I have done except to be born yeah. this way. And, and to... I, I do not think... Like I sometimes, even when we were going through the conversations, people... And I perhaps hesitate to say this, but a couple of people did come and say, you're being so brave, having these conversations... And I understood what they were saying, but I also wanted to say, not really. <laughs> I am not the brave one here in these conversations. Um, but there's this kind of perception that people like me shouldn't have to give up anything. And if we do give up something, um, some, somehow we're being these heroes. And I guess what I, what I want to say by remembering who's at the centre is that in no way should I be seeing myself through that kind of lens. It's kind of like the, the dad who's at the supermarket with his little kid and suddenly he was like, Wow, what an amazing father! Um, you've taken your child to the supermarket. It's like, there is nothing heroic about that. That's all scary. It's something stupid about that, but not heroic. Yeah, taking your to the Yes. I did get in trouble with taking Rufus to the supermarket and bare feet, and he got a bit of glass in his foot. Okay, next one. Yes, centre heroic allies, that's kind of something I've already said, and so. Yeah, I think I've seen that. Can I just uh, raise a particular concern? Mm. Okay, from our tradition, Salvation Army, Mm. um, we have the uh, tradition of telling pastors where they are going to go. They are not called Mm. by a congregation. In other words, they are sent. And they're leaving in droves to say. Yes, well, that's (laughs) one of the other. There's another (laughs) conversation as well. The concern, Mm. though, is is that for congregations that have moved into a particular space mm-hmm. uh, and then to find there is a change of mm-hmm. leadership. Uh, I have, I'm in a congregation where we've seen the worst and the best. And there is, I know what our congregation is saying is that they will not tolerate the worst. Mm-hmm. But I'm just interested in terms of how is it, and I've heard someone else say this today, I'm worried that at the end of the year, my pastor here in Christchurch may be moved to another calling, mm. and we may get someone who is not yet in that space. Uh, I've just been in some conversation around that. Yeah. And this doesn't, does happen in Baptist circles too, right? Because people are called into a, a role in the Baptist, and also the elders mm. are voted in, but they can also be voted out and as your pastor can also be voted out. So... We don't even have that uh, that power. Um, So so where does the responsibility lie? If your community has already done all the work and you have someone that comes in, what can you do? Because if you want them to change, you're going to have to lead them Mm. rather than they leading you. I think one of the things that's really clear is that the conversation needs to happen with our senior leadership yes. so that they understand what the culture what the no, of that congregation mm. is yes. and they know that if they were to, someone were to be appointed that doesn't fit that, yeah. um, there you know, could be consequences. Of course, the challenge is, is that now we've got, as uh, Jules has already mentioned, We've got many pastors leaving in droves for a range of reasons, and it's getting harder to find 
people to do to fit in those kind of roles. So you know, it's there. There's a bit of a damned if you do and damned if you don't sort of challenge, and yet we know that the danger of not being a Thurman is eternal. It sounds to me like um, the system that is being used within the Salvation Army is one of those things that needs to go on the fire sale. Mm-hmm. Right? But you will get, need to get to a point where there's a tipping point where it no longer is serving what the hierarchy needs mm-hmm. and it will be up to them then to go, we need to find a new system. Mm-hmm. It'll burn, yeah. Um. The last one of those three there is just a tendency to approach this, and I say our, in a very generalised sense. But in particular, I think among um, like cishet folk, um, there's a tendency sometimes to approach this as an abstract issue rather than as real people. Mm-hmm. One of the things we did in our community, you know, is, is you know, sat down with some of the rainbow folk ahead of time, had those conversations, and then even after we started um, the conversations within our church, shared a talk on a Sunday then followed up with some of that community again during the week to say how was that experience for you what are you feeling is needed in this moment um, we had one of them was going to share their story but the kind of questions that were coming in from people in the community said to me at that time actually I need uh, there's, there's some other theological stuff we have to work we need to do first before that's going to be probably a, a safer space for you to be able to share that story and so just being able to hold who's actually who this is actually about. It's about real people, um, but it's about beautiful, beloved people. Um, and this is not an issue. Yeah. 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 I think you're probably getting an idea of just how complex it is. Like, as much as we would love to leap forward <laughs> and be affirming, in order to do that, we have to recognise that this is complex and there is unlearning. And people are going to feel unfaithful. And you just covered that first yeah. So, what is the first step that your church or your community or yourself might mm-hmm. need? That's um, something that it might be resources, it might be you need to go and talk to some rainbow people of faith, get some ideas. Um, what is the invitation? So, we talked about affirming and liberation. Um, now, even the word liberation, the word salvation in our Bibles has been um, has been translated from liberation into salvation. So when we read salvation, it has a very different meaning to liberation. So if you go back and read through your New Testament and every word of salvation you come across, swap it back to liberation. And see what it does for you. Yeah. See what it does to your mm. head, your body, your mind, your gut, mm. your yeah. heart. Okay. Liberation. So, what is the invitation? For me, it is always about justice and liberation. Mm. And not just for the LBGT people, but for the church and also for me. Yeah. I want liberation. Mm. I want liberation from frameworks that no longer work mm. and should never have worked in the first place. We can do the same with like righteousness yeah. in the way yeah. that language is used instead of justice. Yeah. It's been turned into this personal kind of yeah. purity, holiness thing. Yeah. And justice. it's not what it's really talking about. Yeah. yeah. Once we recognize we are beginning to shift, 
freaking out and the temptation to backtrack into our safety zone can be very enticing. What happens is we think we're being unfaithful and we are not. We find ourselves on that slippery slope that we've been warned against. But a shift, a slope, isn't a descent away from God. It's an upward slope. It's a holy invitation into justice and mercy and liberation. It's an inward slope. A holy invitation to see ourselves and others as God sees us with authentic humility and faith. Get on the damn slope. (laughs) It is a good slope. It is up and in and is a holy invitation. Back to the car park. Have we have we covered what we need to cover for you, Mitch? Is there some starting points there? Let me think about it. Yeah, come back to me. Yeah. And there was a question around tools around how we how we have these discussions that we care about. So I I run some workshops around this. Um, so it's this, but it's expanded into four workshops. So it looks at danger zones, it looks at how you can have these conversations. So that's one option. Or we can simply take you to, and go back to that one, our resources. Oh, yeah. Right? So for me, the very first book I read that started to shift for me was David Gushy's book, Changing Our Mind. Yeah. So if you want somewhere to start with your leadership group, that is the book to start with. It is easily read. If you've got someone there that is more theologically minded that wants to go deeper, then I suggest the James Brownson book. It is my Bible on sexuality, and he covers Romans particularly well. It's Gushy. He's the one who, because of his background and what he wrote, the previous step as well, has already got a little bit of 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 a little bit but he he was a well-respected yeah, evangelical. He was. <laughs> and then he sent it about fourth edition to yeah. 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 feedback on yeah. feedback and yeah. feedback yeah. through. Yeah. Yeah. And he's got some other books out that talks about leaving the church um, and his faith now. And, and there's a new book on ethics out, which yeah. I haven't got my hands on yet, but looks very, very good. So it's David Gushy is someone that you can trust yeah. in his work after he has come out into mm-hmm. the revisions framework. Um, If you want to read a story, somebody's story, then Vicki Beeching's book, Undivided, is very good. She's got a theological degree, she was a musician, she didn't come out until she was in her 30s, when her body was starting to eat itself, and when she came out she lost all of her contracts as a musician overseas. You've probably seen some of her songs in the churches. But her story is beautiful. Yeah. And, you and if you if you want the Reader's Digest version of that, um, there is an online YouTube um, yeah. through the Gay Christian Network. You can watch her presentation to a yeah. conference. I was present. Vicky, unfortunately, is very sick. Uh, her body is basically she has a debilitating a disease. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, wonderful, wonderful person. Yeah, wonderful person. Person. abstract to people. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, And I think you know when we think about these resources. Um, that's why it's so important to, to understand the context of the people we're talking with yep. that we're trying to help along this journey because yep. you know that person is struggling with Romans <laughs> then you know okay Brownson book Brownson. Or, 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 or Gushy's book you know yep. um, or someone who still sees it as an abstract issue yep. and just would be challenged and confronted by a personal story you know so I think yep. being able to figure out where, where the people you're talking with 
and journeying with or trying to help uh, move along the path, you know, where they're at, then there's a, there's a range of different resources to be able to direct their way. Yeah. Again, um, I've witnessed Brendan Robertson. Um, those stories there are great for reading. So a lot of people, the stories come from are people who are still in the church and are part of the rainbow community. Uh, very powerful stories. So you can go through those. Yeah. I really love uh, Janelle William Paris' End of Sexual Identity because she talks about the anthropology. So she's a, she's a theological anthropologist um, professor. So, and easy read. Like she yeah. sounds really smart. She is really smart, but it's a really, really easy read. So that's really good. Uh, Untob is great. It's a good place to start. We've already, um, Connor's already mentioned Kathy with the Walking Bridges Canyon. She's also got lots of YouTube's and online stuff that is insightful. The site that I've coordinated already enough. You will find all these resources yeah. on there. YouTube videos, podcasts, and the shifters on there. Bible for normal people, fabulous pod- yeah. podcast. Um, there's a whole heap of yeah. resources on there, so I encourage you to go to there. And the shift, this podcast there. Um, I have one coming out with Frosty very soon. We do. Never check coming out soon. <laughs> yep. Coming out soon. Even and now. <laughs> um, so that's coming out. But there's a lot of podcasts information on yep. Frosties that is included for that. Peter Ends, I love Peter Ends, he does yeah. the Bible for Normal People podcast, um, so his books, How the Bible Actually Works, and there's a whole range of books that he does that are solid, theological, yep. easy read stuff, really good stuff. At the moment I'm working my way through Barbara Brown Taylor and Atlas in the World, so she talks about nine spiritual practices yep. that we're probably unaware that we're already doing. And that is a beautiful book if you've got someone that just needs to go inward for a little while on their journey. Yep. Very good. Um, so, yes, yeah, so all of those there. Beloved Arise. That's yep. about yes. Arise Church. No. Uh, <laughs> no, sorry. Yes, Beloved Arise is an overseas website, and there are lots of stories. Little mega church. Yeah, little mega church joke there. <laughs> would you, would you um, wave Justin Lee's corn onto that? List? Yes, yeah, corn. Yeah, sure. Yes, yeah, very yeah. good. And you can also get some of these on audio, yep. so you can listen to them in the car, yep. which are great. Um, yeah, Beloved Arise is great. They have a whole heap of stories from people. Um, that have come out and they also have stories from parents as well. Yeah, faith shifts really Yes, yeah, yeah, faith shifts, yeah, yeah. So, all of these are on the audience website. You'll find them. And Ken Wilson's a letter to my congregation. Yeah, yeah. So, there's a multitude of things there. What I suggest is you figure out which tab you want to go into. Like whether you want to research, if you're going in, into the site as a church leader, if you're going in um, as a rainbow person, if you're going in as a parent or an ally, um, there are tabs for all of those. And I've also put on my topics. So you don't have to go, which do I choose first? Just choose one. Just start with one. So if you like movies, so prayer for Bobby with Sigourney Lee Butler's so the last thing I want to leave us with is remember love before. So as we build our ethics, as we decide what our first step is for our community, 
love before the need to be right, the need to be right, feel righteous, love before the desire to have all the answers, love before the need to make people feel comfortable, love before the desire to be everything to everyone, the desire to appear perfect or even professional, love before the need to appease those who don't desire to journey with you, love before an ethic of love ahead of everything for all. Na mihi ki a korua Mau tenei karera re wupai We have been blessed, haven't we not? So we want to say thank you I know that that has already been expressed In a tangible way But thank you Amanda Thank you Michael And we offer you As you continue that conversation Not only our support but our love, our gratitude, and of course, our coming together, Kotahitanga is community. We are going to move, of course, into next door, I believe we've been asked to do that. Um, dinner is not until, um, I think it's 6.30, was it 6? It's 6pm, so you're going to have quite a bit of time between now and dinner, and part of that is just an opportunity for you to dialogue and to meet with each other, make new friendships, um, add people to your Facebook list, you name it. Um, <laughs> if, you've got, if you've got any connections or resources or things you would like to talk about, if you want to come and talk to our folk, our own people, feel free. Bless you all and good afternoon. Thank you, Thank you.